We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Today's reading is from Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw a place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let me pray for us briefly. Father, some of us are hearing this story for the first time, and it's startling, and others of us are hearing it for maybe the thousandth time, and it is still startling. And so we, we desperately need your help uh, in this moment to understand what in the world is going on in this passage and how in the world it could possibly ever apply to our lives. We come today with so many different questions, so many different struggles, so many different concerns, and so many different burdens, so many different doubts. God, we come from so many different places, and yet, in another sense, we come 
from the same place, which is we are more broken than we know, more in need of your grace and your kindness than we could ever fathom. And so we pray that you would come and meet all of us and speak to us in such a way that our lives would be changed. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, We are wrapping up a series this morning. For like about the last two months, we've been in a series looking at the life of Abraham. And uh, this is the very end of it. And what a, what a, strange, what a strange ending, uh, for sure. I, I will tell you that I've really wrestled with this passage this week. Sometimes people think that pastors read the Bible, and we just immediately understand it. And uh, the reality is we're, we're, we're just like you, actually. There are parts of the Bible that we read, and we kind of don't know what to do with and, um, and, you know, why, I mean, why, how could God command this? And why would God command this? And why would God end Abraham's story this way? I mean, you know, this is, this is basically the end. I mean, there's another chapter or two, but it's, it's pretty inconsequential. Like, this is... It all culminates here in Genesis chapter 22. And if you've been with us the last couple months, you know that kind of the thread that we've been following in Abraham's story is this. We've said that Abraham's story is about God's faithfulness to unfaithful people, which is a very hopeful message. But then we come to this very strange ending, and it's not just strange, but it is troubling. I mean, it's deeply troubling. You know, if you brought a friend today, you've probably already looked at them and said, It's not usually like this, you know. Come back next week. John Krakauer uh, is an author. He wrote a book called Under the Banner of Heaven. And it's a book about, it's a true story of of a Mormon sect. And he begins his book by telling the chilling story of a Utah man who murdered his sister in law and his 15 year old niece. Because God told him so. And this is what he said after his arrest. He said, you would think that I've committed a crime of homicide, but I have not. I was doing the will of God, which is not a crime. Krakauer says that as he was about to kill his 15-month-old niece, he looked at her and he said, I'm not sure what this is about, but apparently it's God's will that you leave this world Perhaps we can talk about it later. And the man described his actions this way by saying, he said, it was like someone had taken me by the hand that day and led me comfortably through everything that happened. These lives were to be taken. I was the one who was supposed to do it. And if God wants something to be done, it will be done. You don't want to offend him by refusing to do his work. Now that's a, that's a hard story to share and it's a hard story to hear, but I... It it captures just a bit of the shock and the horror that we feel when we hear this passage read in Genesis chapter 22. Why is is this in the Bible? Why does God make a request like this? Doesn't it seem heartless and cruel and sadistic? Why is it here? About 30 years ago, 
the well-known journalist Bill Moyers hosted a, a roundtable discussion on this passage. It was a group of scholars. And Moyers looked at them and he asked this question. He said, why would God bring this kind of torture on Abraham and Isaac in this passage? And one panelist said, the real question here is, how do you know it's God? What kind of God would ask Abraham to kill his son? Another panelist said, as I, as I read the account, it appears that the voice Abraham hears is perhaps Abraham's own voice. Now here's the problem with that. The problem is it lets God off the hook. The problem is it's not what the text says. If you look at verse 3, it says this, Then God said, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. The text makes it very clear that the voice Abraham hears is not his own, but it is God's. So, so how do we make sense of this? And what could this possibly have to do with our lives? And how in the world is this guy going to preach a sermon on this? You have to make sense of it. You have to deal with passages like this. I try to say this whenever we come to very hard texts in the Bible. If you just skip over them, if you just skip over them, which is our tendency, then you will never be dealing with God as he presents himself. You'll always be crafting a God in your own image, a God who fits your categories, and that's ultimately a God that reflects you, which is no God at all. So you have to deal with it. You know, if you've been around our church, you've probably noticed that we like to preach three-point sermons. Have you noticed this? Isn't it amazing how so much of the Bible fits into three-point sermons? It's amazing. Uh, if you like three-point sermons, you're going to be really disappointed today. I do not have a catchy outline for you. This is not a tidy text, okay? It does not fit nice and neatly into a little three-point box, but it does have a lot to say to us. And if you're actually willing to sit in it and you're willing to wrestle through it, you will discover that there is a sweetness on the other side of it. It's kind of like a Tootsie Roll Pop. Do they make those anymore? You know, that, when I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, that was like half your Halloween candy at the end of the night. Everybody gave out uh, Tootsie Roll Pops. And I don't think they make those anymore. My kids, they actually, one house gave them apples for Halloween. And I kind of wanted to tell my child to just throw the apple back at the, at the house after the, I mean, who is giving out apples to kids? For ha what is happening in the world? Like, something is not right. Is it just me? What are we talking about right now? Tootsie Roll Pops. That's right. Okay, so it, this text is kind of like a Tootsie Roll Pop. The, you know, remember these things? They're like, they have this hard candy shell on the outside. But then on the inside, they have the, the soft, the soft center. But to get to the soft part, you kind of actually have to work your way through the hard part. That's how this story works, actually. So let's start from the beginning, all right? Verse 1. Verse 1 says, Sometime later, God 
tested Abraham. Okay, stop right there. We're not even halfway through verse 1, but we need to stop for a moment. There's a big word in this verse. It's the word test. It says that God tested Abraham. And if you think back on the story of Abraham, his life with God has been one long test. That's what it's been. God came to him in Genesis chapter 12, and he said, Abraham, I want you to offer up everything you have. Your your family, your identity, your status, your wealth, your reputation. I want you to leave every source of significance and security that you have and follow me to the place that I've called you to go. His whole spiritual life had been a test to see if he loved God more than he loved any of these other things. And now God comes to him again at the very end in Genesis chapter 22, and it says that he tested him. And you say, you might think, well, what, what kind of test is it to command, I, to command Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac? And the answer is, it's the same kind of test. See, God says in verse 2, take your son, your only son, whom you love. This is a test to see what Abraham loves more. His son or his God. And and to really actually understand this, we need to understand the significance of the firstborn in the ancient world. John Levison is a Jewish scholar and professor of ancient Near East at Harvard. He says that ancient cultures were very different from ours. That that modern culture is all about individual success and prosperity. But ancient cultures were actually about the family's success and prosperity. They believed, they believed in and they practiced what was called the law of primogeniture. And here's what the law of primogeniture meant. It meant that the firstborn got all of the inheritance. They got all the inheritance. And the reason was because the family only had a certain amount of land and wealth. And so the more that you, you, you divided the inheritance between kids, the more you diluted the family's uh, prosperity and wealth. And so what did you do? You gave it all to the firstborn, and they became the benefactor for everyone else. And so in calling Abraham to offer up Isaac, God is saying, what do you love more? Me or future security, future status, future wealth, future significance? Now you can imagine how hard this must have been for Abraham. I mean, you can imagine the love that he must have had for Isaac. Because if you remember the story, he and Sarah had been waiting a very long time for a kid. Abraham is 100 years old at this point. It had been 25 years since God had promised them a son, and now he is finally here. He's finally here. You know, and some of you actually, some of you in this room, you know what it is like to have a child after years of waiting. You know the pain of waiting. You know the special joy that comes when you finally get pregnant after years of trying. See, Isaac was their miracle baby. And so you can imagine the love that they felt for him. And you actually, you actually see the love, you feel the love that, I, that Abraham has for him in this passage. Because in verse 6... The entire story, it's like it all goes into slow motion. Everything slows down. 
And all the commentators point this out, that the, the dialogue between Abraham and Isaac is, 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 it is so, just everything goes on pause. See, verse 6, it says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Abraham carried the fire and the knife. See, notice that Abraham, he, he carries all the dangerous stuff. It's, it's so protective. It's so tender. And then every time that Abraham addresses Isaac, you know what he calls him? He's, he calls him my son. Let me just read this again for you. Isaac says, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. It's, it's so fatherly. It's, it's so affectionate. It's so personal. You, you can feel his love for his son and you can feel Isaac's love for his father. Because notice this, that two times in this passage, in verse 6 and verse 8, it says that they went up the mountain together. That means that they are walking hand in hand, side by side. There's closeness. See, it's so intimate. It's so, it's so tender and it's so trusting. Because in verse 9, it says that Abraham bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, I want you to notice something. Abraham is 100 years old. Isaac is about 16. Who, who wins a fight between a 16-year-old and a 100-year-old? See, Isaac could have easily escaped. He could have easily run away. But there's no fighting. There's no arguing. There's no questioning of his father's love and care. It is so obedient. It is so, so trusting. And then verse 10. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now when God says, now I know that you fear me, he's not saying, now I know that you're afraid of me. Because whenever the Bible talks about fearing God, what it's actually talking about is loving God. It is fear in the sense of awe and wonder and, and adoration and devotion. And so God is saying, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son from me. I know that you, Abraham, I know that you love me more than you love him. I know that you love me more than you love any of the other things that he can give you or your family in the future. See, and that's the story. Now, what do you do with this story? 
Well, one direction you can go with this story is you can say, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham to see if he loved anything else more than he loved God. He tested Abraham to see if he was willing to sacrifice what was precious to him because God was more precious to him. And now God wants to test me too. So so what's my Isaac? What is God calling me to give up? Is it it a relationship? Is Is it money? Is it a grudge that I've been nursing? Is it, is it a substance that's, that's destroying me and people that I love around me? See, you, you can do that. You can say, you can come to this passage and you say, God tested Abraham, and he's testing me, and Abraham passed the test, and the question is, am I passing the test? And there are two very big problems with that approach. Here's the first. Abraham was called to raise a real knife over a real human and make a real sacrifice. So if you just spiritualize it, you're actually, you're skirting the issue. You're not really dealing with the text. Too easy of a way out. That's the first problem. That kind of one of the main themes of Abraham's story is that it teaches us that God is faithful to unfaithful people. This is one of the central messages of Christianity. Friends, Christianity does not say that God helps those who help themselves. It says that God helps those who know that they can't help themselves and who can't seem to get it right. Because time and time again, Abraham is unfaithful to God. But time and time again, God is faithful to Abraham. And so if the whole point is, you know, Abraham passed the test and we should too, then it makes it all about him and his faithfulness to God, which is the total opposite of everything we have learned about Abraham's story so far. Do you really think that in this final scene of Abraham's life, God is going to give us an entirely different message? See, it does not work to say God tested Abraham, and he's testing me. Abraham passed the test, and am I passing the test? So, so how do we make sense of it? What is it about? Why does God give us this story? Why is it here? Why is it in the Bible? Here's why. God gives us this story of Father Abraham and the sacrifice of his son Isaac to point us to the story of a greater father, and a greater son, and a greater sacrifice. And that's the Christian gospel. It is the story of a greater father. See, as much as Abraham delighted in Isaac, how much more did God the Father delight in God the Son? You know, the Trinity... What what was God doing before he created us? He was not bored, let me assure you. He was not alone. He was not sad. He was not twiddling his thumbs thinking, what could I ever do to fill my time? No, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit had been delighting in one another for eternity past. And you see, as much 
as it pained Abraham to think about losing his one and only son, how much more did it pain God the Father to actually lose his one and only son? You know, think about this. The longer that you have known someone, the more painful the separation. Abraham and Isaac had been together for 16 years. God the Father and God the Son had been together forever. There had not been a single second of being apart. It had been an eternal, uninterrupted love. See, Abraham's agony and grief is meant to point us to God's agony and grief. And it's also meant to point us to a greater son. Because as much as Isaac went willingly up that mountain, do you know what the gospel says? It says that Jesus went willingly up his mountain. The mountain of Calvary. And this is why Jesus says in John 10, no one takes my life from me. He says, I lay it down of my own accord. I've heard people say that the cross is some form of divine child abuse where this angry, wrathful God takes out his punishment on his undeserving son. Friends, abuse is when something happens to you that you don't want and you don't choose. Jesus went willingly. He was not coerced. He was not forced. He went of his own volition. And you know why he went? He went to make a greater sacrifice. Jesus says something very interesting in John 8. He says, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. And then he says, he saw it and was glad. Now, you just got to stop right there and say, what in the world is Jesus talking about? I mean, Abraham lived almost 2,000 years before Jesus came as a human being into this world. When and where did Abraham see Jesus? He saw him in the lamb in verse 13. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And here's the point. The lamb died so that Isaac could live. This is like the first extended preview in the whole Bible of the cross. In John 1, when Jesus shows up, you know what John the Baptist says? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came as the sacrificial Lamb and He died so that we could live. You see, and now now we're at the center of the Tootsie Pop, actually. It all comes back to the Tootsie Pop. Now we're at the center. Now Now you see there is a sweetness in this passage. And you know what it is? This passage, this story, is not meant to be a test of our love for God. You know what it is? It is actually a test of his love for us. It is here to show us 
the lengths to which he was willing to go for us. This story, it is not here to convict you of the ways that you love other things more than God. It is to persuade you that God loves you more than he loves anything else. It is not about you giving up what is precious to you for him. It is about how he gave up what was precious to him for you. Because there is nothing more precious to him than you. It is not about a God who asks the unthinkable of us, but it is about a God who does the unimaginable for us. And you see, this story ought to shock you. God puts it here. It is shocking, but he does it because it takes a story of this nature to give us just a small glimpse of the depths of his loss and the depths of his love for you and me. And you see, when you see the story through that lens, it changes everything. You go from saying, God, how could you? To God, how could you love me like this? A love that is this costly, this sacrificial, this willing to give up everything, all to bring me into your family. That is what this story is about. It is about the love of God for you and me. And you see, what a fitting way to end this series. I mean, what a fitting way. That has been the story of of Abraham from the first to the last. It's not about his faithfulness to God. It's about God's faithfulness to him. It's not about his love for God. It's about God's love for him. It's not about his commitment to God. It's about God's commitment to him. You see, and if you really grasp this, if you really grasp the love of God, it will change everything. It'll change It'll change the way you see yourself. You know, there are so many voices trying to tell you who you are. Voices within and voices without. And the world says, you're never enough. So keep working. You know, or maybe it says, you're, you're a nobody. You are from the wrong neighborhood and the wrong family, and you will never amount to anything. Or maybe it says that you're a consumer. (laughs) Get it all and spend it all, as much as you can. You know what God said? God says, here's who you are. You are my beloved. You are my treasure. You are the apple of my eye. I will give anything for you. And if you're a Christian, that's how you ought to think of yourself. The love of God changes how you see yourself. It changes how you see your circumstances. No longer do you look at your circumstances to determine whether or not God loves you, which is what we so often do. The great writer John Owen, he said this, he said, the greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness that you can do to Him is to not believe that He loves you. That is so profound that the deepest pain you can cause God is to doubt his love for you. 
See, but when the love of God sinks into your life, now you have a new resource no matter what circumstances come into your life. Because just as God looked at Abraham at the end of this passage and he says, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your only son from me, you can actually now look at God and say those same words. Now I know that you love me because you've not withheld your son from me. It'll change the way you see your circumstances. It'll change the way you see yourself. And it will, you know what else it is? It enables you to live with courage. See, we live in a culture of fear. There is so much panic. And there is so much worry. And people think that the antidote to fear is strength and aggression. But it's actually love. The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. When the love of God comes into your life, you don't have to live afraid anymore. You can have courage. You can be courageous in the way that you engage your neighbors. You can be courageous in the way that you love your city. You can be courageous in generosity. You can be courageous in forgiveness. The love of God gives you courage. Here's the last thing that it will do. Is it anchors you in the face of death. That's kind of a weird point to end a series on. But I've been thinking a lot about death this week. A lot of death. People dying in Ukraine. I learned that a, a, a good friend of mine from seminary died this week. You know, there's just kind of moments in life where you're cruising along and all of a sudden it's like the reality of death just kind of intrudes upon you. Most of us, we, 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 we tend to try to forget it. We don't think about death. But friends, you should not wait until you are lying on a hospital bed or until you're older to fill your soul with a thing that is going to stabilize you in the face of death. And your money will not do it. Your beauty will not do it. Your accomplishments will not do it. Your spouse won't even be able to do it. All of these things will be taken from you. None of these things will be able to sustain you. Only one thing can in that moment. And you know what it is? It is the love of God. It will sustain you in that day. And it will carry you into the arms of God's love for eternity. You know, Karl Barth, who's one of the greatest theologians who's ever lived, back in the 20th century, he was giving a, a lecture to a bunch of seminary students. And he has written tens of thousands of pages of some of the greatest theology ever written. And he gave this incredible lecture, and at the end of the lecture, one of the students raised their hands and asked this question. They said, of all the theological insights that you have ever had, which do you consider to be the greatest of them all? And every person in that room was on the edge of their seats with their pencil in hand, ready to write down what he was about to say. And Karl Barth, he paused, 
He closed his eyes. He smiled. And then he said, the greatest theological insight that I've ever had is this. Jesus loves me. Do you know that's why God invites us to this table week after week? Because we forget week after week. We forget week after week that God has given up everything for us. That he has not withheld his only son from us. That he is for us. That he will never leave nor forsake us. That his eye is always on us. And that his love is always true. No matter what you feel in this moment, no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how much you're actually doubting God's love for you, God says, here it is. In my one and only son. Who came and gave himself for you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, what love we find at this table. A love that is so costly to you, but is so free to us. God, would you give us the capacity today as we eat and as we drink to taste and to see of the depths of your love for us. Maybe it's for the very first time for some of us in this room. We've we've never really tasted it. We've never really seen it. We've never experienced it. Maybe today's the first. And God, maybe this is something we've tasted of and seen a lot, but we, we need to taste of it and we need to see it again because we come as people who are suspicious towards you. We are suspicious of your love. And yet here it is for us. Offered freely. So help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.